0: As we continue this journey, we see the intensity growing, the religious leaders challenging Jesus' authority continually. They're clearly not going to yield to him and put their faith into him, though Jesus is giving them opportunity. They're bringing their full arsenal against him, seeking to destroy him. But they're also desperate for the favor of the people, they fear the crowds. They want to keep the attention and the favor upon them. And at this point, still many are following Jesus, are at minimum enthralled by his teaching and uh, apparently his miraculous healing. Some have experienced it and seen it. Others have just heard about it and are gravitating to him. So to arrest Jesus openly potentially could cause a riot. So they're trying a different tactic. They're laying a trap for him. They're trying to get him to stumble in his words, to be inconsistent in his answers, maybe to say something unpopular that will make his followers question him or turn from him. Exactly what we've all become accustomed to when any presidential campaign is in the works of gaining office. So here's first century smear. Nothing new. In fact, the religious leaders who we've who Mark has named by various titles, the Pharisees, chief priests, teachers of the law, the elders, so there's, there's some overlap in those, some are, some are roles, some are functions. Uh, And then now the Herodians, which we've seen before. The Herodians were really a a separate group. They had some influence, certainly, in the community. But it was the Pharisees and chief priests and teachers and elders that made up the Sanhedrin that we looked at last week, the ruling council, the highest court. They were the ones that kept the, the ministry in the temple going but they're now working together. We we may remember that. This goes this is just a continued intensified theme of what Mark has already shown us at the beginning of his letter back in chapter 2 into chapter 3. Uh, the Pharisees primarily and the religious leaders were coming against Jesus trying to challenge his authority. Where do, where do you get this authority they continued to ask. Where is this coming from? It hasn't come from us. And they they strongly came against him a few times when one he offered forgiveness to the the paralyzed man the paralytic you may remember son your sins are forgiven they grumbled they quite who who can say that who can forgive sins but God alone they challenged that that was blasphemy to them who is this man then he went out and he continued to engage with the sinners he would eat with the sinners that was not becoming of, of a rabbi how is he, he to continue to claim to be one of us and yet be in these places of society? Welcome and receive the tax collectors and the sinners. And then, maybe to top it off, he would work or do ministry or even gather uh, the grain on the Sabbath, thus define the Sabbath. And they challenged him every step of the way. And in, in chapter 3, verse 6, they even went out and plotted with the Herodians, to arrest him and put him to death. And we mentioned that was a striking thing, perhaps lost on us how incredible it was that the Pharisees and the Herodians worked together. Uh, Just imagine it would have been far more unusual than for Democrats and Republicans to come together in unity on an initiative today. See, the Pharisees were the highest, most respected religious leaders, the devout ones, uh, amongst the Jews they were faithful and loyal to Israel and to the sovereignty of God and to the ministry of the temple uh, continually keeping the practice of the way of the law they had not deviated at all so roman oppression and romans came and made judea a roman province in 86 so within just a couple decades of this present time but they they despised and opposed roman rule they tried to maintain their own power and their own authority in that government, recognizing the tenuous nature of the relationship. Well, these Herodians were also Jews, and hence the, the, the moniker, probably a derisive term, those who had gone over to Herod. They were Jewish leaders, but they had become sympathizers, sympathizers and supporters of the Roman authorities while trying to maintain their own independence they, they 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 collaborated they worked together and so they were considered traitors by the pharisees who were loyal to, to god's sovereignty alone and likely the herodians had some personal advancement and uh, some help from the romans and so th- there was a there was a sharp dispute amongst them the pharisees despised the herodians but in this case they're now working together <laughs> so to work together meant they were both recognized the threat of this, this upstart rabbi claiming this kingdom of God, this kingdom not of, of the world. He was threatening both of their perceived positions of power and, and prestige and influence in the day uh, because the crowds were clearly coming to him and following him. So they needed to remove him. And they were willing to do anything, even to work together in the initiative to arrest or maybe even Remove by killing Jesus. So they set this trap. Uh, They think it's a wise dilemma that they're putting in front of Jesus. He turns the tables again. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now they knew that if Jesus said, yes, pay the taxes... Well, they, it, almost everyone in the crowds would have booed and hissed at that because the, uh, the, the Roman tax and tribute was oppressive. In fact, it was an incredible hardship for some, leading to the imprisonment of, of many, maybe even in their own families, because they could, uh, being in a relatively poor uh, society, they, they could not easily pay this tribute. So if Jesus said, go ahead and pay it, they would have at least questioned him, wondered about him, been concerned about him, maybe even called him a Herodian. So you're fine with this tribute? They certainly would not have considered him a Messiah, the Messiah who had come to deliver against Roman oppression, all oppression, but in this case, in Roman oppression. And that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians hoped would happen, that he, they would cause a, a division or a turning from his followers. Maybe even more so if Jesus said, no, do not pay it, which maybe they thought was more in keeping with some of his recent claims, his bold claims. But if he said that, they knew they could then go to the Roman officials, call him out as an insurrectionist, at least starting an uprising, using the Herodians' influence in those positions of power to at minimum arrest him to remove him, potentially even to kill him if they could pin on him that he was truly an insurrectionist. Well, Jesus saw straight through this. Mark shows no subtlety. They came to catch him, to trap him in his words. Jesus knew their hypocrisy and directly asked them, why are you trying to trap me? And before we look at the genius of his response, calling for the denarius and his famous words, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God God what is God's, Let's look at the irony. We love irony, don't we? Mark does? We better love it. In this last passage, the one we looked at last week, we see the sanhedrin, this highest court, saying to one of Je- in response to Jesus' question, "We don't know," which is so ironic, because they were meant to know all things, to make right judgment, to know the truth. And they say to him, "We don't know." And, and then further irony, they thought they did know. <laughs> that the authority that it was given to, to Jesus was not from God, and therefore the one that was given to John was not from God. That's what they believed. So they thought they did know and ultimately proved that they, they know nothing. So they say they don't know. The irony continues here. Really, because this is their, their statement, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians' statement collectively together about who Jesus is is one of the most powerful, accurate descriptions of Jesus that we see anywhere in the gospel Now, it's incomplete because they don't name him as Messiah or as Lord or as God. But listen to what they say again. We know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men. You pay no attention to who they are. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Well said. What a declaration. Now, let's break this down further. We'll see even more irony that Mark employs. It doesn't come through as as clearly. And I looked at a number of English translations. I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring them together while looking to the Greek. Literally, the Greeks says in this first line, Teacher, we know you are true. How ironic. They just said we don't know. Here they say we do know. And what do they say? That you are true. You are truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. I love this. Literally, it says you concern yourself with no one because you do not look at their face or the face. You do not look at the face Now, in this idea of hypocrisy, which is used often in the Gospels, uh, the word in Greek is hypocrite or krites. It, It was an actor in a Greek play. That that was the word. If you were a hypocrite, you were an actor. Now, Jesus is using it to call them out clearly as a derisive term, but otherwise, in Greek society, it was either a neutral term or a positive term. It was a descriptor. And actors, mostly in Greek plays in in that day, would simply hold up a mask. Maybe they would change costume from time to time, but there may just be a handful of actors carrying out an entire play, playing multiple different parts, and they would simply change masks. And even sometimes within the same scene, the same actor, person, would simply change the mask he held to change his scene probably changing his tone and inflection, and and that's just how you would follow along the story. You would know. So how would you know what was being set up, what character was being played, by looking at the face? And here are the Pharisees and Herodians coming to Jesus saying, you do not look at the face. You do not look at the face that, essentially, they're saying that we put up, that we are holding up. You're not paying attention to, to us to those in authority to those playing a part playing a role he knew of their hypocrisy he knew of their acting all of this was an act a charade he does not look at the face he looks at the heart apt description this reminds us of the famous words that the lord said to the prophet samuel in first samuel 16:7 when Samuel was sent as the prophet to anoint the next king of Israel, who would be King David. And you remember, maybe, that King David at that point was a young man, maybe the slightest amongst a large family of of strong older brothers of the house of Jesse. And he assumed it was one of the older, stronger, warrior-type sons of Jesse that God had chosen and anointed. And these words came to Samuel, do not... Consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do not regard the face, he is saying. Look at the heart. That's what God is concerned with always, our heart, our character. Jesus clearly has the same spirit insight throughout his ministry. Back in chapter 2, the passage I referenced where Jesus Healed the paralytic, offered forgiveness of his sins, the grumbling of the Pharisees. Mark 2, 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. He saw to the heart as he sees to their heart here. Now, here's the final part of the Pharisees' hypocritical, acting, but true statement. You teach the way of God in accord with the truth. Literally, you teach the way of God in truth. So why aren't they with him? This powerful, accurate declaration of who he is, mere flattery. It's all to set up this trap, this dilemma they're putting before him. It's all a facade. They're behind the mask. This is the role that they are playing I think we could press into that maybe for the application that we'll get to in a moment when we think of mask wearing. It can both be to play a part that is not, was not, is not truly who we are, but is an act, is a show. It's, a, it's also potentially two-faced, right? That I can change my mask from scene to scene depending on what's required, what's been scripted for me. But we have to remember at the broader level that the whole point of being a hypocrite, being a Hypocrite was for the attention and approval, acclamation, if not applause, of the audience. So, at its core, to be a hypocrite means you're playing for approval and attention from the crowds. And this is what Jesus is calling out. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians will give them some credit. They knew what would strike to the heart of most in the crowd money. <laughs> taxes forever the issue is it right to pay taxes to caesar or not jesus if you're if you are to come into office are you going to raise taxes or lower them where's your stance on the matter he was ready of course bring me a denarius whose likeness says the ESV the NASB and the other translations whose portrait says the NIV whose head is this it says the NRSV I like that whose head whose face maybe whose mask is on this coin but really the greek word used here could have all of those those meanings we have a direct literation of this word from the greek which is the word icon right icon so from from, from icon we get the english word rhinoceros No, i'm just trying to explain just thought I would see if we're paying attention. We've got some glossy <laughs> eyes. I understand. I'm talking a lot about Greek. We get the word icon, of course. A representation. A representation of, of another. And, and probably the, the most faithful re- rendering of this word should be image. Whose image is this? And I think that's, that's probably what Jesus meant, knowing how powerful that term was, especially in the Greek. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter one, the, the whole story, right? The very beginning. And God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our image, let us create the male and female. In, in the that's the original, original language was Hebrew. It was translated into Greek around 300 years prior to Jesus. And that's called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And they use the word icon. Let us make mankind in our icon, in our image. Represent, they, they are to represent us, the, the God, the Godness, the Godhead, the, tr- the Trinity, and so I think that's clearly what Jesus is hinting at here. Whose image is this? Whose likeness is this? Of course, it's Caesar's. They knew that, they knew that answer. So he says, render, give unto Caesar what, what represents Caesar. What is his likeness? Whatever it represents Caesar, give unto Caesar's. Anything that images him, whether these little scraps of metal that you have assigned value to, that images him well. They're they're weak and worldly, or maybe a mere bit of attention or recognition or thought. Give unto Caesar what images him, what represents him. Give unto God what is God's. So is Jesus advocating to pay taxes or not? It seems so, but the Pharisees and Herodians withdraw knowing they've been bested. Because even in that simple statement, they're left wondering, is he advocating paying taxes or not? Give unto God what is God's. What is God's? Any faithful Jew would have said, everything. God is sovereign. He is owner of all, creator of all things. Give unto God what is God's, all things. If we render unto God all What is left for Caesar? So is he advocating paying taxes or not? Exactly the kind of thing Jesus would want us to wrestle with. Render, give unto the world and worldly structures and worldly powers and worldly rulers what represents them. Things that will fail in value will rust and corrode. Give unto Gods all the rest. Give unto God what image is God. Your very selves, who you are, eternal things, your heart, your character. We certainly know that God does not need our money, he wants our heart. Those are often linked, right? Even Jesus made that link in the famous Sermon on the Mount where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You can't be any other, which is why he invites us to give generously of our resources that our heart would not be tied to them because he has given us abundantly so much. But really what God is after is what images him. He desires us to reflect and to image, to not be behind any mask, to not veil who he has made us to be, but to make him known, to represent him in this world. You're made in his image. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and so many others had been concealing their true selves to become something other. They've made themselves in their own image. That's the mask they are wearing and how quickly and easily we can do the same. Instead of reflecting and imaging God in the way we've been created, we try to make our own image. Whether it's for the approval, the acclaim, and the attention of others, or whether it's that we would withdraw, that we would hide, that we would blend in and not be seen. Maybe we toggle even between the two, depending on the scene. In the next section, Mark 12, 28 We see the way that we could bring ourselves fully to God. Jesus responds to a question of the scribes. What's the most important commandment in all of the law? He responds, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall render unto God all of yourself. Present yourself, bring yourself, give yourself fully to God. How do we do that in heart, soul, and mind? A couple things. First, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give unto the world what is of the world and no more. Now that's maybe a fuzzy line to be determined on a more personal, individual basis. But give unto the things of this world what belongs to the world, and no more, and no more. The worldly rulers and kingdoms, give, their pe- give your pennies and scraps of metal that will tarnish and rust. Give some thought and attention to these systems of power and governments that certainly have influence over our lives, and no more than what's required of us as dual citizens. Do not become Herodians, adopting the practices and politics of worldly kingdoms. Well, where's the dividing line? Now we're getting into a sticky place here. Am I, what am I advocating? Am I advocating disengaging completely from political systems, from governments? No, I'm not. I'm advocating representing kingdom values wherever we live and have been placed, advocating, putting our vote toward those that we believe will make influence in kingdom values, whether they claim to be followers of the true king or not, if they maintain the values of the kingdom of justice, of mercy, of righteousness, of freedom, of peace, of equity, then we advocate, then we stand up Then we engage. But here's maybe where I would draw the line. If we put our hope into a worldly system or government to make the change needed to bring that kingdom, we have become Herodians. Is it not evident by now that any earthly structure, system, and government is ultimately corrupted? Yes, there is a spectrum. But ultimately corrupted because they've been built upon the best ideals and ideology of men, and therefore will always have the pull of greater power and influence for those in power and with influence. Jesus offers another hope to his followers. In John chapter 18, 36, he famously declares, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom was like this world. There would be fighting and conflict. My kingdom is not of this world. Later, he'll say my kingdom is a kingdom of peace, of shalom. A kingdom where God's rule and reign is perfect, just, merciful, equitable, free. Where his shalom and his love reigns. Are we not desperate for this kind of kingdom? It's been the banner of this, of this series throughout. An upside down kingdom that's not in the ways of the world is one that we long for, that we strive for, to see developed here on earth, but to never put our hope in. The Apostle Paul made very clear we are dual citizens, ultimately citizens of the kingdom of heaven forever. And even now, as we live, whatever nation we find ourselves in, whatever time in history we find ourselves in, we carry the dual citizenship. I thought it was interesting that this week, I know some of you are following along with uh, with God Daily by Pastor Sky Jatani that we promoted a little bit at the beginning of the year, and his whole week's devotionals were on the idol of earthly kingdoms, or the idol of governments and politics. He quotes a number of, uh, of key people throughout. He quoted C.S. Lewis And he calls us to to love our nation, to be patriotic, but not become nationalistic. There's a dividing line there. We love our country because it's our country, just as I love my family because it's my family. But that love cannot cross over into oppression, therefore, of others or hatred toward others. As if my country or my family had greater favor from God and was higher than others, but that does not take away the love we have and the call we have for where we've been placed, what we've been called to. C.S. Lewis said, love for one's nation, and he's not speaking of America here, he's not an American, love for one's nation becomes idolatry when it becomes a firm belief, even a prosaic belief, that our own nation in sober fact has long been and still is markedly superior to all others. It's idolatry, according to C.S. Lewis. Good patriotism, it does not renounce patriotism. Good patriotism produces a good attitude toward foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men no less rightly love theirs? At the heart of our continued pause to pray for those in oppression, for the refugees and those in Ukraine, it's the, the answer to who is my neighbor? For for us, they are a long ways away. But who is my neighbor? And do I see myself in that very place? And thank you, Brenda, for calling out how similar the lives are of these brothers and, and sisters, though many other things might be different. So much is the same. May we render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and no more, and no more. May we give ourselves fully to God and his kingdom. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and therefore to the church, not to any nation or political regime when he says these famous words in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He speaks to the church to be his kingdom of light wherever we are placed, wherever we find ourselves living, advancing kingdom values wherever we can. Giving to God all of ourselves means stripping the masks that we find ourselves naturally wearing. This is such difficult work and ongoing work so much of it is subtle we remove one mask to see another that we've been holding our world has, has reinforced the need to wear a mask for any kind of advancement or approval to to gain space in this world to gain a to gain a claim that we must be something that that which we are not and therefore make ourselves that the requirement almost to wear a mask just to survive And so whether it's to boldly stand out and play a part, or whether it's to hide and withdraw, to blend in and not be seen, we're so accustomed to wearing these masks. Rather, we're called by God's word, reminded of who we are as image bearers. We image him in who we are and have been created to be. That we have no other need to represent ourselves in another way but to say we are representatives of our creator King. Who is delighted to put his image in us in his beautiful diversity. To receive that. To agree with God in that. To bring ourselves fully to God. To give God what is God's. We receive that we are his image bearers first and above all other things. That so much of what we might declare this is who I am is simply a characteristic or personality trait. It is not our identity. Our identity is image-bearer of the triune God, meant to represent him, to reflect him into our world. And if we have his approval and his attention and his affection, how do we need any other? The Apostle Paul wrestled with this, as we do, but stated these very powerful words in Galatians 1.10, crying out, and I can hear the turmoil, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, for he had lived much of his life that way, I would not be a servant of Christ. For those of us wearing masks, to hide as much as we wear them to stand out, and maybe all we do is to hide and survive, because what we see in ourselves is not what God sees in us, but we even despise ourselves. Or who we think we are. Either something we have done or something that's been done to us. Or something that we're not, that we thought we should be. And so we play a part under a mask as a hypocrite to hide. To simply blend in. To disappear. Because if we were to remove that, no one would truly love us. And they probably would leave us. If they really saw us. First, again, agree with God. You bear his image. He delights in you. He loves you. He sees you as son, as daughter. He simply wants you to be free. Strip off those masks, discard them, never pick them up again. The things we say of ourselves that start with the I am just. I am just a fearful person, broken person. I am just someone who is unlovable. Those are all lies. It's not who you are. You are an image bearer of God who may need healing, who may currently be struggling with fear, who may currently not be experiencing the love that you were made to receive. But reject those lies as part of the stripping down of the mask and receive what God says of you, both through his words and through his actions. There is nothing he has withheld from us. Some of this requires repentance. Repentance for the masks that we have worn. Repentance for believing in these lies. Repentance simply means turning from. Turning from a way of life, a way of thinking, to a new course. That's what Jesus invited us to in his first call. Repent, for my kingdom is here. My kingdom where you get to be who you were always meant to be. To live forever forever. Begin today with me. We repent and we receive. We receive his kingdom. We receive his salvation. It's sozo so in the Greek. Save, salvation, means so much more than just from earth to heaven, from hell to life. It means wholeness, rightness, fullness. It means identity. It means shalom. It's just a rich, deep word. This is the salvation that Jesus offers us, the one and only. Receive it today as He invites you to see yourself as He sees you. More and more, may it be, and may we be in awe. It will be difficult. It will be hard to receive ourselves and see ourselves as God sees us because the world continually tells us an opposite message. His is the upside down kingdom. May we see it and receive it as He. Speaks to us today. Let me finish with James chapter 4 verse 7. And here's our call to action. To render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The bits and scraps that that deserves. And no more. And to render unto God what is God's. Primarily us. As he invites us. James says submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. The liar. Resist him. He will flee from you he must in the authority of Jesus we rebuke and reject the enemy who continues to speak these lies and will try to assault us again maybe the moment we walk out these doors or tomorrow morning or the next day that you are not who God has said you are we rebuke and we resist resist the devil he will flee draw near to God and he will he will draw near to you he's already drawn near to us we draw near to him today as we respond through singing as we respond through quiet and reflection, as we respond through communion, being reminded of what he has done and continues to do, bringing his sozo. Cleanse your hands, sinners, those that have turned away from the kingdom of God. That's simply what it means to sin, to turn away from him. Cleanse your hands, repent, turn toward. What a gift. It can be done today. We could have been spending our entire life away from him, and in one moment turn toward him and receive grace, mercy, and love. That's the incredible gospel. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, you hypocrites, who are so prone to acting. Purify your hearts. Remove those masks and lament, mourn, and weep of the loss and the pain. Humble yourselves before the Lord And he will exalt you. Take that posture, whatever posture the spirit leads, as we sing and as we reflect today.